0: What exactly is ESG? Where did it come from? And how did it start to take hold and reshape our world? How is it related to the infamous UN SDGs? The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. In this episode of Liberty Curious, Paul Mueller joins me to discuss and dissect. Paul is an economist and senior research faculty at AIER, who specializes in defending freedom and combating collectivism. He's written a definitive collection of articles on ESG.
1: A really helpful way to describe ESG is a global quest for solidarity. The people are looking for something that will unite everyone in some kind of moral cause, moral crusade.
0: ESG has been perniciously changing the way corporations, governments, NGOs, and institutions operate. This ideological framework, synonymous with stakeholder capitalism, has become the subject of public scrutiny and backlash, but nonetheless, continues to dominate. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to check it out on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and let us know what you think in the comments below. So you've been um, doing this great series for AIER where you talk about all of these different things. So you talk about the history, you talk about the terminology, you talk about the advocates for ESG. You've also been writing numerous articles about this. So this is kind of really uh, your area of focus. But I think where we should start is to kind of zoom in in and look, where did this all begin? Like where did things change? And I'll just read to you from uh, your recent article, a short guide to ESG history on AIR's website. And you say, new international organizations arose in the post-World War II era, most significantly the World Bank, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and the United Nations. International development became a massive and newly self-conscious undertaking. Before these organizations emerged, countries pursued national, domestic, and trade policies largely independent of one another. The international scene was largely driven by private trade subject to diverse national laws." international aid and international development were not independent undertakings by global organizations. So what happened there in the post-World War II era? Why did things start to move towards this kind of coordination that the roots of ESG are, are, are founded in?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And <clears throat> there's, I'm sure there's, I'll, I'll skip over a number of things that are important, but what I, what I, what I wanted to highlight in that piece that you read and, and, as people think about this is ESG is very much a kind of global phenomenon, right? That the people who are most interested in it are people at the UN, people at the World Bank, people who go to Davos and the World Economic Forum. There's this sort of international elite that are, are really setting the tone, setting the paces and the goals for where everyone in the world needs to go. You could say, I was thinking about this earlier, you could say that the ESG in many cases is really a quest for global solidarity. That's how I would describe it. It's a quest for global solidarity. And what I highlighted there is that pre-World War II, the international community was just a very loose association. You had a bunch of different countries. They had different alliances. They would occasionally do things together, one, two, three countries. But there was no global community. There was no global set of organizations uh, pursuing various kinds of agendas. After World War II, that changes. So with World War II with the defeat of Germany and Japan, setting up the United Nations, but not just the United Nations. Also, as you mentioned, the IMF, the World Bank, are these sort of supranational global organizations that are caring for the world, right? That they're they're not limited to Europe. They're not limited to North America, to this country, that country. They're supposed to be global organizations. And as a result, you have people who are working in these organizations and they they grow over time. Their funding comes from different countries. They're engaged in a lot of different activities. But what happens is you basically build up this kind of international community, if you will, which on the one hand, you know, community is good. On the other hand, it kind of, what kind of community is it and how artificial is it and what are they doing? Uh, But you get, you get an example of this. So the, the uh, COP28, UN um, Global Climate Conference just finished up in Dubai. I read there were sixty to 70,000 people there, right? I mean, it's just this massive conference, people from all over the world, right? And those people probably see each other at a variety of conferences throughout the year, right? That they are the global community, right? They are the, the leaders of different countries. They're connecting with the leaders of other countries. They're engaged in... Um, NGO work, international work. And so it it really is this whole kind of community that most people have no real interaction with, right? Most of the world does not go to these conferences. Most of the world doesn't even know the people who go to these conferences. Uh, And yet they are taking on the mantle of, we are here to identify and solve the world's problems. Uh, And so that's very much how they approach this. Uh, in terms of the history again just to like trace it out a little bit i see the esg movement which goes back 15-ish years now almost 20 years now as just kind of an extension of things that were going on before and then there's two kind of different parts to it the international part is the the aid to poor countries so there's this idea with the world bank and imf okay we're going to wealthier countries are going to help support poorer countries in their development and humanitarian aid and so forth. And so you have this development of the international aid community, NGOs. And again, it's a big industry with hundreds of thousands of people in it uh, and a lot of money. So you've Mm -hmm. got that piece. And then you also have in the US and elsewhere, it's not necessarily a new idea, but it kind of gains strength of uh, what people call stakeholder capitalism, the idea that um, a narrow definition of business as serving shareholders primarily is like, that's that's the focus. And then we produce goods and services subject to the rule of law to do that. That narrow conception is disliked by people who have other, again, other agendas, right? Again, social justice has been around. That term has been around a long, long time. So they would say social justice, they would say, well, we need, we're concerned about equity. We're concerned about fairness. We're concerned about the poor, we're concerned about the environment. There are all these things, advocates of stakeholder capitalism would say, all these things that a, a narrow capitalist approach to business is not going to address, is not going to deal with. And so what we need to do is need to rethink capitalism. And again, the main proponent of this right now is the leader of the, the World Economic Forum, Klaus um, Schwab. So he is the, mm-hmm. the, the literally the poster child of this. I mean, it's been his... his baby for decades, right? He's pushed stakeholder capitalism very explicitly at the World Economic Forum. And the idea is we want, (coughs) excuse me, we want stakeholder capitalism. And that means that instead of pursuing the shareholders best interests and maximizing their returns, we're going to try to benefit lots of different stakeholders. And again, the, the, the problem is in the ambiguity, right? Who are these other stakeholders? And do they all have equal stakes? Do they have unequal stakes? Uh, and, and one of the problems, because there's not a clear definition, is you can throw any stakeholder you want into it. And so, some people will say the ground your building sits on is a stakeholder in some sort of abstract mother yes. earth kind of setting. So, like, what does yes. it mean to treat the ground properly? Uh, you know, it's kind of an extreme example, but but mm-hmm. not outside the realm of things that have actually happened. The ground, uh, the birds, the air. And, and this is far beyond. And so people think, well, if you criticize that, you don't care about the environment or you think that businesses should just be able to do whatever. That's not the case at all. Right. It, it's reasonable to have some basic rules and regulations about disposal of waste and you know other kinds of things. But to say, oh, all these different stakeholders basically have a kind of ownership in the company. Uh, that is stakeholder capitalism. And we can get into more of some of the where that takes us down the road. But that that stakeholder capitalism idea, back to the thread, stakeholder capitalism combines with this sort of international community, international aid and development. And these things, too, kind of merge together sort of in the 80s and especially the 90s. And then out of that comes ESG in the early 2000s. And also... You know, corporate—the idea of corporate responsibility or um, responsible investing—these are parts of the stakeholder idea of responsible capitalism. Those are just parts of the the stakeholderism. So those things come together in the '90s, and then in the 2000s, you have the rise of ESG.
0: Paul, there's so much good stuff in there that I'm I'm trying to think of which which piece to pull upon to ask you the next question. But one thing I want to mention is, have you heard of? King Charles's Terra Carta initiative.
1: I've heard bits about it, but I don't know much.
0: So this is kind of, you know, going to what you're saying here about making the planet a stakeholder, just to give an example, right? He Mm -hmm. said, you know, we have the Magna Carta, which was based upon human rights, but now here's this Terra Carta, which is based upon rights of the planet. Right. And so there's that kind of so so really what you're describing here more broadly is this kind of ideological shift that has been taking place over the decades. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And another thing that I had read about the inception of outfits like the U.N. or the World Bank or the IMF was that after the first two world wars, there was this kind of um this kind of idea that world peace would only be possible if there was more coordination. You know, there were people at that time who said, we need to have the UN there to coordinate everything. There were some people mm-hmm. who believed that the nation state was a failed because of all of these wars and all of the damage and the destruction. So they kind of had this um, really utopian idea for the world, in a sense, when they founded these organizations. So um, is this something that you've kind of come across in your work on ESG as well, this kind of utopian way of looking at the world?
1: Yes, I very much so. And I think, as I said earlier, I think a really helpful way to describe ESG is a global quest for solidarity. People are looking for something that will unite everyone in some kind of moral cause, moral crusade. Uh, Mm -hmm. And ESG very much has it. If you you read various websites of organizations that talk about how to do it or have recommendations or, or other sorts of things, there's a kind of triumphalism in a lot of their language of net zero. Of course, that's where we're going. Of course, it's the right thing to do. Of course, that's the best thing. And everybody wants that. There's just kind of this in many cases, it doesn't even enter their minds that people might have objections, concerns, you know. And obviously, there's been a lot of pushback in the United States, and and ESG folks are trying to make sense of that. What do we do about it? How do we get around it, and so on. But but on the whole, it's it's there's this triumphalism, right? We're marching to this net zero green world, and it's going to be great. And everyone, like, well, how could you object to it? So so mm-hmm. there is this moral thinking behind it I, i think i would be a little bit hesitant to to call it call people in it overly utopian there's utopian elements but many of them recognize certain challenges i think they don't recognize all the challenges but they recognize that like you can't just do this overnight they recognize that it's costly that it requires a lot of change so that they they're aware of some of the difficulties that they face in sort of moving to this new world but Again, for them, it's really just a matter of time and calculation, not 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 if, but when. And and that is again, I think, a symptom of this sort of utopian streak that you're referring to. And you know, we you've talked with other people in the past about cultural Marxism. There is a cultural Marxist bent to the stakeholderism is, is related to that in some ways. Mm-hmm. You think about Marxism, Marxism is also utopian, right? There's this sort of inevitable move towards a socialist or a communist utopia. And it might take some time, but it's going to happen. It, 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 there are a lot of echoes. They're not—they're not exactly the same thing. I wouldn't—I wouldn't say the ESG movement and cultural Marxism are the same, but there's some overlap and there's some echoes in what they're trying to do and where they're going.
0: So you just mentioned time and calculation, and also coming back to the last thing you said before this, talking about people—you know—who who gather at COP28 and all of these conferences. You know, seventy thousand people there, but you know hundreds of thousands or millions of people who, who build their careers around this and are kind of in this echo chamber together, right? Where this is, you know, they're doing great work in their life. They're making lots of money. They're building a better future. They have all of these kinds of um, ideas and uh, all of these incentives. Uh, but when you say time and calculation, and I think about all of these people at these conferences, I think of technocracy. And, and you've written a little bit about the techno- technocratic element of ESG. Can you explain mm-hmm. that?
1: There's a lot of a lot of different ways we could take this. So you know, I'm an economist by training, uh, and and something that matters a lot in economics is the problem of calculation, right? And in many ways, you could you could even say that the economic problem that individuals and society faces is a problem of calculation, right? How do I spend my time? How do I, you know organize resources for me individually, how does society organize resources? what are the best ways to produce goods? what kinds of goods should be produced? And the the technocratic element that you're talking about is not new. The socialists had a technocratic element to them as well. and, and what I would say is like that the technocratic element that's different from a sort of a competitive free market approach is that the technocrats assume they have the answers to many of the calculation questions, right They assume, we know what ought to be produced. We, they assume we know roughly what the trade-offs are. We know uh, where we're trying to go. And so what, what they have is not an economic problem, but an engineering problem. And again, Hayek and Mises and other economists criticize the socialists about this to no end of saying you're assuming all kinds of information and knowledge that the market actually has to provide you. Right. Of course, if you knew what everybody wanted and you knew what all their resources were and you knew what all their skills were. Yeah. Then it's just a complicated sort of linear algebra problem and you could just do that. But we don't know that. And it changes constantly. What people want changes. What is available changes. Technology changes. And so this is one of the big problems with the technocratic approach is it assumes many things that they don't actually know or that can change over time. And so the end result, and and I haven't written about this a lot, but this is kind of some things I'm working on now, is we can know for sure that their current approach is extremely inefficient and wasteful, right? So in a market system with prices, profit and loss, you have signals about how valuable certain resources are, how costly they are to produce, how much consumers want them. And also you get information about how well are companies operating, are they making an efficient use of resources? Are they keeping their costs down, creating a lot of value? Companies that do get a lot of profit and expand and grow, and companies that don't, that are wasteful or take the wrong bets or doing, it they take losses, they go away in a competitive market system. But the way that we're approaching a lot of this renewable energy system, so if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act or the Infrastructure mm-hmm. Bill or you know things in Europe, government's approach has been to throw tons of money and say, okay, If you produce solar panels, we'll give you a lot of money. If you produce wind turbines, we'll give you a lot of money. But some of those companies are not going to be very good at producing solar panels or producing wind turbines, Mm -hmm. right? The the government has no way of really knowing ahead of time, because nobody does, which companies are going to be well-run, efficient, disciplined, using resources well, and which ones are kind of fly-by-night, they're taking the money and running. And it's just kind of a shotgun approach. And so we know that a lot of this is gonna be wasted just from inefficiency within the companies that are getting massive subsidies. Then you layer on top of that, the the broader and and deeper issue of, well, how competitive, how valuable are solar panels and wind power in general? Like, is this even a good productive use of society's resources compared to alternatives? And that question, again, that's the question they assume the answer to, right? They assume, Mm -hmm. of course it is, we have to go this direction. It's getting better. So, again, they've assumed that it is when I think we have a number of reasons to believe that it's probably not uh, as obviously productive to have tons of solar panels and wind farms being produced.
0: And then there's also after that the question of who's going to buy it, right? Like, are people actually going to want these things? I mean, I just saw something in Canada uh, that by, ni- uh, by 2035, they're going to make it so that you can't purchase any new vehicles if they're not EV right? But how is that actually going to work? Are people going to want that? Is there going to be an infrastructure that's able to take all of that on? You know, this sounds to me like this kind of central planning uh, (laughs) mission, and uh, I just don't see how it's going to happen in real life. So that's also kind of where the ideological element that that you're talking about here, this kind of socialist way of looking at the world in a way. So I actually want to ask you, Kind of an economic question that's that's related to all of this um, that could maybe kind of clear things up, which is, you know, who determines value and who determines price when we're talking about mm-hmm. consumers and producers?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, going again back to, to Ludwig von Mises, I think it's simple on his right. He says the consumer is king, right? When it comes to economic value, the consumers are the ones who set economic value because they are the ones who benefit from the products that they buy, who make decisions about the trade-offs that they face. And so I tell my students, not all value is economic value, right? There are values that are not economic in nature. However, all economic value is subjective value, subjective to the consumers right in terms of the kinds of food that they pick the cars that they drive where they live clothing all kinds of stuff those decisions are based on subjective value that varies from individual to individual and the role of business is to to basically to meet those consumer desires in as low cost way as possible right? Because again, the cost, the business has to pay the cost. So they're trying to keep their costs down Mm efficiency-wise. And they're also trying to generate things that consumers want. And so this is, again, I think (coughs) we get a lot of conflation in the ESG movement. They have non-economic values that they want to pursue. And they're trying to take the economic systems to pursue those values. And again, that's what stakeholder capitalism is, right? It is saying, oh, we value certain uh, a certain cl- uh, cleanliness of air, or we value a certain diversity of the workforce or whatever, and we're going to harness businesses to achieve our non-economic values, right? I mean, that, that is to say, they're not values that are necessarily shared by consumers, people who buy the products of the company, people who work at the company, people who own the company, shareholders. None of those people might actually care about this value And yet the ESG advocate, the regulator who's pushing this is saying, no, you're going to have to to take the company and devote resources to this thing that we care about. Right. We the regulator, Mm -hmm. we the politician, we the climate activist. And so there is a a great conflict, I think, of values between, you know, those who want to push ESG and those who are either more skeptical or rather just live their lives and, you know, in in a normal competitive way.
0: Uh, Thank you for clearing that up and for tying in ESG because that was kind of the line of thinking that I had, which, you know, was rather than the consumer determining the value, it's the other way around. And that is what happened. You know, if you think about Communism, if you think about the Soviet Union, it was like, we think this is valuable. (laughs) So we're going to produce a lot of it and or we're going to we're probably going to fail at producing it because, you know, we're doing this all in a a centrally planned way. But then your consumers are forced to choose from that selection of things rather than the kind of demand being driven by the consumer, by the people. Right. So it's really kind of kind of this reversal.
1: Well, and it's so. um, So it it's worse than that too. Yeah, go um, ahead. In that like one of the big problems with ESG is that <clears throat> it's not really above board, if you will. And and the, the reason why is because many of the costs are hidden from consumers and from taxpayers. And so so in Germany recently, the, the they had um Germany has rules about their budget and how large their budget can be. They can only go like a little bit over a balanced budget before they have to declare an emergency. So they're just not allowed to borrow a lot of money. So that's in their constitution. However, they had set up an emergency sort of fund. It was actually coming out of COVID, but they've been using it to fund renewable energy products and have been borrowing massive amounts of money to fund these green the government has to fund these green energy products and the german high court ruled recently said that you can't do that like that's government spending that's government borrowing you got to bring that back into the main budget uh Mm -hmm. and so now all of a sudden germans are looking and saying oh my gosh we're borrowing tons of money that was not in the budget the official budget it was like this sort of side item so it's like that's one example but i'll give you another example if ESG advocates, right, if they're, they're concerned, you know, if you talk to them, they're really concerned about climate change. All right. They're concerned yes. about the, the planet burning up and dying. And you know, we can get into some of the nuances of that in a second. So they're really concerned about that. And so they want to move to renewable energy. They want to throw all this money at it. But the problem is that uh, for citizens, they don't know what the trade-off is. Right. So if, if I were to to ask you or ask somebody and say, OK, uh, the, the federal government just gave a billion dollars to this solar company to produce more solar panels. How much does that cost you? Right? I mean, how how would you even begin to answer that question? Very, very difficult because all this money goes to D.C. The government spends a ton of money. I don't know. It's just part of their spending. I pay taxes, whatever. But Mm -hmm. if instead we the ESG advocate said environmental, Problems are really big deal. Global warming is a really big deal. We've really got to pull down carbon emissions. We should tax, just have a really big flat tax on carbon emissions. And the price of gasoline went from $350 to $420 a gallon, right? Then I say, mm-hmm. okay, how much is it costing you to pursue this? Well, then people can say, oh, yeah, actually, it's, it's painful, right? Like I'm spending this much more every time I fill up my tank or throughout the year. Right, they would feel that very directly, and and there would be a lot more questions, right? And maybe some resistance. That's why ESG people don't want to do it, right? They want a, It's kind of a shell game of moving money around in ways that are mm. not really above board in terms of people being able to feel or know those costs. What am I really paying for this? But that's what you want to do, even at a if you if you buy the ESG agenda, that's the the most efficient way to do it uh, from an economic standpoint because you just tax carbon production. And then you let the market sort out. Are EVs the best way to do this? Are hybrid vehicles the best way to do this? Is it solar? Is it wind? Is it nuclear? Is it natural gas? Right? Add the, the external cost, right? The externality, the contribution to global warming. Add that in, right? However how you want to do it as an ESG advocate. Put that in there. Have it flat, above board, across the place. People will feel the cost. Businesses will mm-hmm. adjust to the costliness you've made, different kinds of activities. And then the best and most efficient ways of producing goods that people want and reducing carbon emissions are going to emerge over time, right? And so it's really, it puzzles me. There are things that puzzle me about the ESG movement that they're just not very economically savvy, really, when it comes to understanding efficiency and the dynamics of markets. Uh, They understand a lot about finance and how to manipulate finance, but they don't understand much Hmm. about economic fundamentals, as far as I can tell.
0: And even then, you know, even if they did understand that, uh, who gets to decide those kinds of things, right? Like that itself is not a market-driven thing to decide like, oh, we have to reduce our carbon emissions. You know, this is coming from the top down. Like this is not coming from ordinary people mostly. I mean, maybe now there's a new generation of Zoomers, uh, of of activists who I know, I see this when I go into the stores all the time and I have, you know, a younger person serving me something. They'll tell me, hey, this thing, you know, by the way, the packaging uh, is composted so you can feel good about buying it. And I'm just like, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not even going to get into it with them, you know, but, but, you know, I think that that's uh, a big part of it too, right? Like how this has kind of shifted over time, you know, it's been something that's kind of been decided, uh, you know, away from the people, but the newer generation is kind of being dragged into this way of thinking. What do you see going on there?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, again, it's it's this quest for solidarity. I mean, and we could we could hmm. really go on a long tangent about the decline of religion being tied to sort of these the various quests for solidarity, whether Marxist or ESG or whatever. Maybe for another conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but yes, I think that young people, especially, are alarmed, right? Because they hear a lot of climate alarmism, um, and you know that that there's. <laughs> <clears throat> there's a scientific question, which I'm not really, uh, can't really answer, which is like, how much is the world warming? How much will it warm if this or that? You know, the IPCC has their estimates. There are people who dissent from it. Uh, it seems like recently the, the world has been warming. I'm a little bit skeptical of a lot of ad hoc attribution of every time there's a major storm up climate change. Sort of like, well, I, I don't think we really know that. But But anyway, putting that aside, There is this economic question, and and again, it takes us kind of beyond ESG in a way. But I'm writing about it right now, which is: should we be focusing our resources and our time on preventing the Earth from warming, or should we be focusing our resources and time on adapting to however the climate changes? Right? And one, one just sort of very obvious example of why this matters is if you look at the number of deaths from natural disasters. The number of deaths for nationalists declines dramatically as wealth increases, right? So a number of years ago, there were two earthquakes. Uh, I think one was in Chile and one was in Haiti. And the mm-hmm. earthquakes were similar in terms of the Richter scale, in terms of severity. But the death toll in Haiti was, you know, 50 to 100 times higher than what it was in Chile, just because they had less infrastructure, they had less emergency services, they their buildings weren't built as well. Haiti was a much poorer, less economically developed country than Chile. And so the same kind of disaster was orders of magnitude worse for a country that was poor. And now we see this to some extent. If you watch some of the the videos of uh, like the UN climate conference, they they have videos of people in sub-Saharan Africa or parts of East Asia with flooding and mudslides. And they're just, you know, devastation, tragic humanitarian stuff. And they're like these are the people who are suffering the consequences from climate change. And so we need to prevent climate change from happening to help them. It seemed like a very, very indirect roundabout way to me of dealing like, no, what, what they need is economic development, right? If if they had Mm -hmm. better buildings, better supply chains, you know, vehicles, infrastructure, then they could actually handle a lot of these things much better. So instead of trying to like, Cut emissions so that the world warms a little more slowly, so that there's like a little fewer superstorms or whatever it's just you know as you tie these things together, the conclusion becomes more and more precarious so that would be as sort of a philosophy or an economics objection, right, regardless of the mm-hmm. the exact science that would be a, a something to talk about as an, as an alternative approach to reducing emissions, but even to the the young people that you're talking about, kate, and there's a lot of them, and I think this is very much a live issue for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we just did things above the board, I think a lot of the worst excesses of ESU would be prevented because people would really feel the direct costs. Is it really worth it to raise our taxes this much? Is it really worth it to have to cut back on how much I drive or these other sorts of things? Maybe it is, right? Maybe people will make that decision. Maybe politically we'll decide this is an important issue for us do but as long as it's above board and clear then people can make their own decisions companies can focus on being efficient producing value at the the lowest cost possible given the constraints they face uh and then we can sort of judge over time are we happy with this are we not happy with this are we going to try a different way of, of managing the economy
0: um i think that that makes a lot of sense um and the problem I think is, as you obviously know, is that this is not the way that it happens, right? It's not um, it's not coming from people deciding on their own. It's coming kind of from the top down and it's coming from all of these kind of uh, different outfits that are coordinating together and making these decisions for people. And I sent you this yesterday, And I I would love to hear your comments on it. This is um, the Deutsche Bank in 2020. They wrote this white paper, right? And they said, if we really want to achieve climate neutrality, we need to change our behavior in all these areas of life. Um, And then they say, I know that eco-dictatorship is a nasty word, but we may have to ask ourselves the question, whether and to what extent we may be willing to accept some kind of eco-dictatorship in the form of regulatory law in order to move towards climate neutrality. And then they give an example. They say, what should we do if property owners do not want to turn their houses into zero-emission buildings, if they do not have the financial means to do so, if doing so is not possible for technical reasons, or if the related investments do not pay off? They're not even asking the question, like, do people want to do this? You know, should they want to do this? They're they're flat out saying we should ask ourselves, you know, if we if we should have this kind of eco-dictatorship. So my question to you is, do you think that ESG is kind of changing this regulatory framework around these things and, and moving us kind of in that direction?
1: I think it, it is uh, exacerbating this natural proclivity that people have to try to run other people's lives um, mm. for their own good. And so you can think about, I mean, lots of examples come to mind. You can think about bans on certain size of soft drinks. You can think about bans on sort of kinds of um, hydrogenated oils. You know, you could say, yeah, yeah. so so let's just take a a slipper analogy, right? If you said, all right, if we're going to live in a world where every person is going to be healthy, we're going to have to have a health dictatorship that is going to regiment when they exercise and what they eat. Yes, that's true right? Like to, to if you're going to try to get everybody this way, then you're going to mm-hmm. have to force a lot of people to do that. But then the question becomes, okay, is it good to be healthy? Okay, sure. But then you kind of get into it. Well, what do we mean by healthy? And like, is health the only thing that matters? And what about other parts of life? And and what are the kinds of things we have to do to force people to be healthy? Are those kinds of things actually abusive uh, or, or violating people's rights, their dignity? Uh, and that, is very sort of alien from what I've seen to ESG advocates. I don't see them saying, oh yeah, I wonder if we should respect people's rights. I wonder if, you know, maybe there's potential significant abuses from an eco dictatorship. Uh, It's just, uh, is this thing is good. And, you know, and they might be right about that. Like, so yes, hypothetically, a world with less emissions, all else being equal. Sure. That, that seems like it could be a better world, but like, Nothing else is equal. Like there's so many trade-offs and costs and other sort of, and so you can't just say, "Oh, this thing is good," and well, we might have to, you know, break a few eggs, eco-dictatorship to get there. Like Mm that, that does not follow, right? You can't do that. That's just really, it's not even moral reasoning, right? It's like it's not just sloppy moral reasoning. It's like the absence of moral reasoning in a lot of cases, right? Where there's there's no appreciation of human dignity, human rights. There's no um, uh, nuance in terms of the dangers of collective activity and political power being exercised. I mean, again, it's it's very similar to stuff that was said to the socialists, right, for for decades, right? Yeah, yeah that all sounds great, but how are you going to get there? What about alternative values, alternative options? Um, so, yeah, it's it's troubling. I mean, this is this is one of the most troubling things about esg and this is why it matters that it's sort of a one-dimensional moral crusade they're just not willing to sort of to to listen to or consider alternative values competing values trade-offs uh and that is alarming
0: so, Paul, why did you get interested in ESG? Like, why do you think that it's important to study this stuff and to talk about it and to to share information about this with people?
1: Sure. So in my work at AIER, um, I'm on a team on defending freedom, combating collectivism. And, and in our team, we're sort of identifying what are some of the major areas where where freedom is under attack and where collectivism is being advanced and and there's a number of areas so protectionism industrial policy the stakeholder capitalism and uh esg is a big part of that and so it was something i had a little familiarity with but you know the way i tend to approach things is i'm just going to like try to start at the beginning and sort of work my way through to understand you know, the landscape. So that's what my series uh, at AIR is about. It's just like, okay, let's just try to get a basic picture of what's going on here, who's involved, where things stand. And then as we do that, and as I've done that, I begin to see a little more deeply, okay, here's some nuances to the agenda they're trying to advance. Here's why they're pursuing these kinds of issues as opposed to these other kinds of issues. Um, <coughs> and ESG, it is... It's, it's a big part of this stakeholder capitalism I referred to earlier. And in, in an earlier form of stakeholder capitalism, you could even call like corporatism. So sort of in Italy or Germany, there's this corporatism of it's not socialism where the government owns and runs everything. It, it, there's some private property, there's business, but the government and business are very much combined where you know the business leaders and the government leaders are talking all the time. And so government cer- sets certain targets or allows some businesses or industries to do certain things, but not others. And so it it it's stakeholderism, right? It's basically business being run for political and social ends. Uh, mm-hmm. and in, in those cases it ended up being very undemocratic over time. Um, it, it's hard to imagine this being a stable, democratically ordered system because power is going to become concentrated among business leaders and political leaders. <clears throat> but it's it's antithetical to private property, right? It's antithetical to a dynamic, competitive, free market system. Uh, And it's it's deeply corrosive, I would argue, to appreciating the value of individual people, right? So, you know, sometimes we say individualism versus collectivism as like these dichotomies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, There's a false individualism or an uh, an atomized individualism, kind of almost like an Ayn Rand sort of thing, where the individual is the only thing that matters. There are no social goods. There is no community. There are no like that's that's like really extreme. Um, But there there is something very very important about individualism about recognizing the dignity and value of individual people, not just groups, not just countries, not just the poor, but every person. And unfortunately, ESG, again, it has this sort of global framework. They're thinking about global problems. They're thinking about big issues. big, And they often lose sight of individuals, right? And this whole approach to the world, to society, loses sight of the importance of individual choice, personal responsibility, self-autonomy and direction, and the ability to order our lives and our communities as as we see best, it, it, it just doesn't it loses all of that in the, you know, big climate, big social justice perspectives there's no real place for that. Or at least I haven't seen anyone really try to integrate those things in a compelling kind of way.
0: You know, speaking about this human dignity um, and the individual, I think that's really, really important. I think individualism, as you're saying, is kind of confused often with that kind of atomized individualist uh, uh, stance, but... Um, the protection of the individual as the smallest minority, I think is is really what it's about. And I recall having a thought a few years ago, you know, not long after my son was born and it was, you know, during lockdowns and all of the uh, airlines were basically laying everybody off. There was nobody flying, really. Um, The international borders were closed. And I thought, is my son going to be able to have the same kinds of experiences that I had is he going to be able to travel around the world is he going to be able to float in the salt water in the ocean one day and um that dignity of the individual kind of came into my mind you know where like these there are are very big cost to this. You know, the world gets a lot smaller uh, when the tentacles of control wrap around people and they look like they're these benign things. But you wrote an article called The Totalitarianism of Climate Alarmists. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate a little bit on on what that all means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's related to this sort of one-dimensional moral thinking that I uh, alluded to earlier. And so there's no concern really about the individual here. It's sort of about the group, society, the world. And the, the totalitarianism part <clears throat> comes in when the environment is the primary or in some ways the only thing that matters. And what we've seen happen, especially in California and, and in Europe as well, but I'm thinking I was thinking more specifically about California, is that the the government there can basically pass any law at once if it they say it benefits the environment, right? If it said, okay, all cars have to be pink, if they could somehow connect that to the environment being better, they might be able to make that happen. Uh, and it's it's just kind of the there's there's no the, the point of the the totalitarian like the the definition of totalitarianism is that there is no limit to political power. Right? That there is nothing that it cannot touch there is nowhere that it cannot go that's what's the total part of the totalitarian part and so it's antithetical to most of western civilization right the idea of checks and balances of rights of rule of law of constitutions um and so the the people who are advancing this climate agenda many of them see that as as the good to be pursued and anything that blocks that is bad right? Be it law, constitution, public objection, whatever, those are just, well, you're just getting in the way of, of doing what's right. And this, this goal of improving the climate, the idolization really of certain parts or elements of the climate, it leads to people willing to do just about anything or justify just about anything, right? Restrictions, costs that are imposed, you know, making people's lives difficult, miserable not allowing them to do things that you were talking about. We saw it like the, so the pandemic, there was an element of totalitarianism in it, right? It was sort of health totalitarianism for a season. And it was awful. Mm -hmm. It was really bad on, on a whole bunch of fronts. And so, you know, the climate is not as broadly seen as as urgent as, you know, COVID in the early days was or the first year, but it has that same kind of trajectory of this is existential, this is global and therefore we are justified. Anything that will address, let me, let, me, let me rephrase it. Anything that will improve the environmental situation, even if it's maybe a little bit tenuous in terms of how much it improves it, anything that improves it is justified. End mm-hmm. of story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the kind of totalitarianism I think we should be aware of and concerned about uh, in these conversations around climate, especially, especially with young people. Right, who share this ideal of a clean environment, of the world not warming and so forth, that, that we, we need to really talk with them and say, well, well, that's fine, right? And maybe we disagree on how important this is, whatever, but it's important to you, okay. However, what can you do about it? What should you do about it? Uh, we need to be careful not to be this kind of one-dimensional crusader who says, well, we, we should do everything we can, all we can, all the time. That is the road to totalitarianism. And I think a lot of people have have started down that road, especially when it comes to to climate change.
0: This is a great segue to bring us back into kind of another article that you wrote, which is the advocates for ESG, um, Mm -hmm. among them, the World Economic Forum. Uh, And I recall that during these lockdowns, uh, there was another white paper that was on the World Economic Forum's website where they had said that, Uh, carbon emissions by jet fuel, you know, uh, had Mm. international travel had been reduced by something like 80%. And (laughs) they were saying, this is great. and, And this is where we should be going towards. But of course, private jets, as we know, the ones who go to COP28 and other such events are exempted from these calculations. So it, it's really just like the public flying uh, that was you know, reduced by 80% of emissions. And they were happy about this. They had uh, little infographics of airplanes that were broken. The wings were broken off And said, kind of, you know, this is the direction that we need to go in if we want to achieve our ends. And when you were talking about this totalitarianism, and what it means, I was thinking of Hayek, The Road to Serfdom, where he talks about how any ends are justified. uh, Sorry, any means are justified to meet the ends of anybody who has this kind of program, uh, that, that they want to, that they want to advance, uh, regardless of, of what all of the, um, what all of the, what reality will be like for, for ordinary individuals, anything is possible. So long winded way of getting back into the advocates of ESG. So, so who are they?
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot, just to, to build off of what you were saying, something else that comes to mind is uh, George Orwell's mm-hmm. Animal Farm, right? All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, right? And yes. and that's so, <laughs> so true of the, the climate alarmism movement. Um, <clears throat> well, in terms of the advocates, so the way I conceptualize it is there's really kind of like an ecosystem of organizations in the ESG space. So you've got some organizations that are sort of setting different kinds of goals, you've got other organizations that are kind of um, setting guidelines, doing consulting, trying to uh, help companies figure out how to meet these goals. And then you've got uh, an increasing sort of cottage industry of companies, startups that are like trying to figure out how to make money on this. So you've Mm -hmm. got big consulting firms like McKinsey or Bain and Company, they will, they're happy to consult for lots of money to tell you how to do ESG right. Uh, So they're, they're on the ESG bandwagon. They can make money. It's a new area of business for them. You've got new software companies that are building software designed to help you track all kinds of emissions of like everybody and their mother uh, so that you can report these things better. So they're going to try to make money. I referred to the carbon offset market earlier. You've got startups that are, you know, so one startup is, has found a way to like pull carbon out of limestone and sequester it. And then the, the new carbon free limestone pulls carbon out of the air Then they do it again. So Microsoft gave this company hundreds of millions of dollars to like develop their technology and, you know, do this stuff with limestone to pull carbon. Other companies are literally just like burying wood so that it doesn't release any emissions when it decomposes. Um, And so there's there's, everybody (coughs) is scrambling for a piece of the pie. And the pie keeps getting bigger in terms of the amount of dollars that are being thrown into renewables, into carbon offsets, into compliance. Compliance is a big thing. Um, massive costs and compliance and potentially growing costs and compliance of reporting uh, and measuring and doing all these things. Um, so in terms of the advocates, I think there's a lot of people in that ecosystem. They don't all share the same interests, just like, you know, in any kind of normal ecosystem, you've got different kinds of animals and plants and stuff. Um, the apex predator, if you will, right? The people at the top of the food chain is really <laughs> the the UN world economic forum, world bank leaders, uh, who basically are exercising a tremendous amount of influence and power by putting together big conferences like COP28 and having lots of sub-agencies and organizations that look to them for guidance about the goals and the direction. Uh, so there is a kind of hierarchy, too, within this this ecosystem. Again, it's, a, it's sort of an informal hierarchy. There's no – it's not just one organization. Uh, but there mm-hmm. are sort of like – organization. So One organization will look to another organization for guidance and they'll look to another one. So there is this kind of top down. It's it's interesting. There's like a top down element. And then there's also, uh, this kind of movement or ecosystem, right? So it's this, this weird merging of top down planning, but then because there's so much money involved, there's a lot of sort of bottom up entrepreneurship, uh, I don't know, people looking for ways to make money in the process. And so it, it makes for a very kind of interesting set of organizations and businesses that are involved in this. And I think what we're seeing <clears throat> in the US is that with all the pushback, the people who are more in it for the money are starting to pull back versus the people who are in it to win it. They're just like, this is just a temporary roadblock We just need to you know keep hammering these people and find another way around. So I think you begin to see different advocates and parts of the ecosystem react differently based on their motives when there is opposition or pressure or negative feedback
0: one of those people was larry fink right who had kind of pulled back from the term esg what happened there
1: yeah (laughs) so larry fink you know running blackrock which is just this unfathomably large asset management company i still don't understand how it got so big but manages trillions and trillions of dollars of retirement accounts pension funds huge fund So he was kind of talking about ESG and has gotten a lot of pushback. In fact, I think I saw that Tennessee, the the attorney general of Tennessee, just sued BlackRock for deceptive investment practices around ESG. I haven't read up on it in Mm. detail, but like just in the past couple of days, I think they lodged a lawsuit. Um, But basically everybody started saying, not everybody, but a bunch of people started saying, especially in red states, hey, you know what? Your job is to manage people's money for their retirement, uh, and, and your job is to try to get the best returns for them so that they have as much as they can for retirement. But you're starting to invest in this ESG stuff, and it turns out that that many of these ESG funds are not having great returns, right? They're not returning as well as the general market. Uh, there's all this social and political stuff involved in investing in this. And did you ask your investors permission to do that did you did you ask them if you could lobby for tighter environmental controls or more renewable energy right and so so there's there's kind of a couple pieces to this one are you fulfilling your fiduciary duty to hmm. invest people's money as well as you can for them for in terms of return and then two there's this idea of you know the idea of voting proxies of representation of are you just, have you really taking advantage of people who just, you know, it's their pension fund, retirement fund, you're using their money for political and social ends that they don't know about, they may not agree with, they may oppose strongly. And something about that seems wrong too. So anyway, so he's faced a lot of criticism from a variety of quarters. And so he's said, you know, I'm not going to use the term ESG anymore because it's so politically loaded. That wasn't my intent. It, that may be true. may not be true. Although I do think he said another point of like, we're not actually changing our commitments to these kinds of things. We're just not going to use the term anymore. Wow. So <laughs> again, I don't, I'd, I'd have to go back and look, I was just reading an article about that. Um, and I don't know, I'm not an expert on like what he said or hasn't said over the past two years, but he has taken, he has said ESG has become a very political term. That's not good for us. Basically. We're not going to use yeah. it anymore. Um, realizes but are getting some heat that, they haven't really changed their mind on all, many of these things.
0: There's. Do you remember that? I'm sure you do. I mean, you're an economist, but that that paper by Milton Friedman. Uh, what was it? The social responsibility of business is to make profits. Right. Right. Something like that. Is that the correct title?
1: <clears throat> you know, I think so. I'd have to go back. I it's think been a little while so.
0: Look at it. But I recall reading a while back, actually. You know, when the World Economic Forum kind of came into vision when people were suddenly like, what is this thing? Uh, mm-hmm. so, something about how actually Klaus Schwab had written a, a rebuttal to that piece like way back in the 70s, uh, which was like, no, 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 the the social responsibility of business is blah. And that was kind of the the birth of stakeholder capitalism and the birth of the world economic form was was basically uh, in an antithesis, to Milton Friedman's free market ideas. So like really broadly, is that kind of how you see ESG being like the anti-free market kind of way? Yes,
1: generally speaking. I mean, you're, you're right that the stakeholder capitalism is very much opposed to that kind of Friedman, uh, Friedmanite conception of business. Uh, it, it gets a little bit tricky. Like I said, you know, we started off the conversation talking about business schools. Um, and, and, and sometimes the way ESG is presented in a very narrow way can still be consistent with profit, you know, pursuing profit. And just like this is just this is a tool for risk management. All right. Just like mm-hmm. uh, supply chain management is a tool that businesses should have. They should know how to manage supply chains well. They should know how to have good HR policies. And so ESG is sometimes presented very narrowly as a tool for increasing profits. I think that much of that tends to be more of a bait and switch. And so like one of the first things I wrote about ESG is this sort of bait and switch that goes on of they say that, but it's not really what it is at all in practice. Um, but the other thing, and this is, again, something I've, I was just working on writing about this morning, is that even if that were true, right, even if it were true, that using environmental, social and governance criteria in your day to day business operations could help you mitigate risk and improve your bottom line, you wouldn't have to push it, because companies would do it anyway, right? If this is a best practice and helpful for increasing profit, then they're going to do it. And what's even more the case is if you think about each of those buckets, and let's say there's, you know, 400 items in each of them, businesses are going to just take the items that are helpful and not take the other ones versus many of the advocates, it's all a package, right? You got to do all the environmental, you got to do all the social, all the governance. Hmm. Uh, and so it's, at, at, at best, it's unnecessary. At worst, it's, it is inefficient. And I mean, I guess even worse than that is it's the redirecting of people's capital and wealth in ways that they're not aware of, that they don't approve of, that actually can make their lives worse over time.
0: So... <sighs> Where do you think all of this is going? Like, do you see, I know that there's some pushback now in the States. Um, EU might be a different story. Other countries may be a different story. Like, where do you think that this is all going now um, in terms of of this? Is this going to be like a fad that fades away?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I don't think, I think there's too many uh, vested players who are, basically insulated from market feedback and from political feedback because they don't run businesses and they're not elected. And so even if mm-hmm. like their ideas don't make money and people don't like them, they can still promulgate them because they are at uh, supranational ins- organizations that are very insulated from these things. So that's not going away. <clears throat> the climate alarmism is probably not going away unless we see a major reverse in global warming. That would be really interesting to see, right? You know, if, if six years from now, like temperatures begin coming down in a really obvious measurable way that that would, that could break up the, the so maybe, I don't know. They were worried about it being too cold, right? Well, yeah, they ago, call it so. climate
0: change now, <laughs> yeah, right? So right. it's like, so the, yeah. yeah,
1: that's right. It could be anything. Yeah, they, they, would still, they would still be worried about things, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so that's not going away. I think where we go from here, is going to vary a lot by country. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback in the U.S. There's some in Europe, but not a lot. Um, I think I think what's going to happen over time, like let's, let's say zoom out 60 years, I think what's going to happen over time is that the countries that push ESG are going to become less relevant over time because their economies are going to stagnate. And the countries that ignore ESG, like China and India, are going to become much mm-hmm. more influential over time. So I think you're going to have almost a kind of competition, economic competition between countries. And and it's going to be related to how much they, they jump in on this sort of wasteful and, and counterproductive strategy. And so over time, if Europe continues down this road, they're going to become increasingly irrelevant to the rest of the world. As, as an economic unit, they're just going to be smaller and smaller and smaller um, because they're, just, they're, they're slowing their growth in very clear ways by pursuing these policies uh, to such a great degree. The U.S. will kind of see. If we go down that road, I think it'll be the same thing. We'll see slower economic growth and less less uh, influence. If we don't, uh, then we'll still be you a know, major player on the world stage. The other thing I'll say, <coughs> and I'm still thinking about this, um, is it seems like for the true believer, right, let's say the – the the genuine you know doesn't want to hurt anybody but is really worried about the world ending. For the true believer, if we can propose better approaches, you know, to young people, that could make a big difference. So I, I haven't explored this fully, but I, this is kind of one of the things I'm going to look at is it. It puzzles me that wind and solar have been pushed so much, and nuclear has like you know been fading when it seems like nuclear is far more efficient, far more environmentally friendly, almost, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, it's abundant, you know, you can split little bits of matter to get tremendous amounts of energy. And there's a lot of matter in the world. I mean, talk about renewable energy. I mean, like nuclear seems to be certainly in theory, and it's not even theory because we've had nuclear power plants for, you know, uh, almost a century, half a century, at least, it seems like the way to go. And yet you don't really, I don't see people pushing nuclear uh, in the ESG movement, right? I mean, it is always mm-hmm. wind and solar. Um, so if we could make a, sort of a pro nuclear environmental push, again, I have to kind of dig it. I'm not an expert. I have to dig in a little bit more, but like that could be on of like, let's not throw money at solar panels and wind farms and EVs necessarily. Let's look at nuclear and trying to really, you know, champion nuclear, safe and e- and cheap to produce. And then also have, like I mentioned earlier, if we are concerned, if young people or a majority of people are concerned about it, climate change and emissions, then do something above the board, right? Do some kind of clear tax that is not distortive, that lets the market works, that gives people maximal freedom to kind of order their lives as they see fit. And you know what? Maybe the gas guzzling SUV becomes more expensive even than it is now, but you can still buy it if you want to, right? As opposed to, you can't buy. It doesn't matter how much you're willing to pay for it. It doesn't matter how useful it would be, how much you want it. Mandates, as you refer to in Canada, and this is true in California as well, you can't. We're going to say you cannot buy that in 2035 or whatever the year is. So again, trying to... So I, I think the... Like part of what I hope to do in conversations with people in education is reveal... The, not just the, the, the totalitarianism, the inefficiencies, the distortions that are caused by it and say there's much better ways. You, you know, I have some skepticism about whether we should really be pursuing this goal 100%, but let's say you mm-hmm. don't. Well, what can we agree on is a better way to do it that promotes freedom, respects individuals and liberty, uses markets to, to really solve these problems in the most efficient and, and beneficial way, and do so in a way that we can actually agree upon and is above board as opposed to closed door meetings by elites, whether in Washington or in Davos or Dubai.
0: I think that that's a good point, Paul. And I think that, you know, doing things above board, I know in Canada there is a carbon tax, right? But And people, so people do see it and they do feel it. Uh, They don't really have a choice in it. But what happens there, too, you know, as a consequence of that is that there's a lot more backlash from from voters. Um, And so, you know, then, you know, when things are more transparent, as you're saying, people can see what the results are. And then they can say, hey, we don't want this, you know, and they can vote for somebody else who's going to roll things back. You know, so I think... um, you know, being transparent about those things are really important. But as you said, you know, in the States, you have the Inflation Reduction Act, like a bunch of climate initiatives are are hidden in there, you know, like in these executive orders where, oh, Inflation Reduction Act, cool. But but there's it's all about climate stuff. I remember talking to Tom Hogan about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a big challenge. And uh, another thing I think too, when you were talking about – Uh, nuclear energy, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think that that could be a solution for people who want to do those things. I know that in the EU, what they've done is they've actually closed a lot of nuclear facilities over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a great book that I just sent over to you. uh, That's written by um, somebody who heads the F.A. Hayek Institute in Brussels, And in Brussels, they have, you know, these socialist green parties that had have been heading the way for years. And one of the things that he remarked, you know, and being in that environment was that a lot of the times when it came to nuclear, people were just ideologically opposed to it because it was humanistic in a way. And like... Mm. One of the kind of philosophical elements of this whole push towards green, which also explains the totalitarian element, I think, is that there's that Malthusian element to it, which is anti-human. And I think like maybe one of the one of the like philosophical kind of approaches that that we can have as well to talk about these things is to say that this is kind of what's underneath it, you know, like telling the youth it's okay to to exist it's okay to take up space it's okay to consume Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and it's all good stuff you know so maybe that can kind of um be part of the discussion as well what do you think
1: yeah i think so i mean i think that we should have a very optimistic response to the pessimism that's out there and and you know going back to what i said about do we focus on prevention or adaptation? Right, kind of really highlighting the value of adaptation and all the things in life, the other values that matter besides, you know, ESG values. Um, and that that you know, again, I'm very, I'm going to be an optimistic person that there's a lot of ground I think we can agree on, or or at least agree to disagree. And and what right now a lot of the conversation isn't really even happening. Right, it's sort of there. There is no other side to be heard. There is no other side mm-hmm. to address. Uh, and so helping people to think about the fact that there are other sides and, you know, to kind of question, this is kind of, again, classic Austrian economic approaches is, you know, focus on the means in some ways more than the ends. Like not that you don't talk about the ends, but just focus on how inefficient the means people propose are to their ends uh, can be a good way to to find some common ground. One other thing I'll mention, <coughs> you know, talking about the the EU and, and the nuclear um, an article I'll recommend to, to listeners is an article by Hayek called Intellectuals and Socialism. And, uh, and in that piece, he talks about mm. the role of intellectuals and intellectual climate, intellectual opinion. And it seems to me, again, I am I, not an expert on it, but it seems to me that that may explain a lot of the anti-nuclear movement in Germany, especially, but in other places where a certain group of people, a certain group of intellectuals kind of decided that nuclear was bad and had to go. And so, Mm. and they have certain kinds of influence. So they've been pushing that out. And then the Ukraine-Russia war breaks out and the pipeline gets blown up and prices go through. And ordinary people are like, wait a second, why are we closing nuclear power plants? Like who decided that? And it was just this small insular group of people, intellectuals, right? Not philosophers. He's very clear that intellectuals are not necessarily philosophers. Uh, These intellectuals, just had this group thing. They decided this was best. They rolled back the nuclear. So they're like closing down functioning nuclear power plants that create all kinds of problems. And, and this, you know, I, maybe I should write a piece about this. Intellectuals and ESG, right? The intellectuals yes. and ESG. Because it's, it's the same kind of thing. He's referring to this. It's, it's smart people, people who are smart, tend to be educated, but are not necessarily really deep thinkers. And, and they run in certain circles with other people who are smart and educated, but again, maybe not philosophers. And and then they just develop this sort of climate of opinion in these circles that then kind of permeates a lot of policy stuff. Because the, the intellectuals and the policymakers tend to overlap a great deal. Um, maybe you have an idea now for, for another piece to write, the intellectuals and ESG.
0: I think that would be great. I think that would be great. I definitely recommend that people read what you have written. I'm going to plug all of it below. It's all really great stuff, really kind of written in a language that's just accessible. Um, people can have kind of a roadmap of ESG, a kind of primer, the different elements of it. Um, I really look forward to, uh, to reading this next piece. I will hold you to it. And uh, are there any last <laughs> thoughts that you want to share, Paul?
1: <laughs> no, that's it. Thanks, Kate. It's been fun.
0: Okay, thanks so much. Uh...